So Romans 12, beginning in verse 14, some people have likened the church over the years to a hospital for those needing help and healing. A new popular name for churches utilizes the word refuge, which promotes the idea that the church is a spiritual shelter from pursuit, danger, or trouble. The church is for sure those things and more, but you can't simply hole up in the church. You have to leave and go back out into the world, go back out into the wilderness, and there you encounter uh, non-believers. How are we to relate to non-believers? In other words, uh, how, in far as our reading through Romans, how does all the doctrine we've learned thus far in Romans make a difference out in the world? We've seen a lot of doctrine. We uh, continued in doctrine in Romans 9, 10, and 11, but specifically about Israel and God's plan for Israel. Then beginning in chapter 12, we saw the church and, uh, you know, in terms of being the body of Christ, ministering one to another. But now Paul says all of this has to make a difference when you go out into the world. And so he begins in verse 14 saying, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. I, I mean, right in your face, right from the beginning. He doesn't build up to anything. He doesn't, you know, he just says, okay, now we're out in the world and you're going to be persecuted. You're going to want to curse people or uh, not in the sense of cussing at them, but you're going to want to return, you know, something equal, but you're going to want to bless them as a Christian. And this does, I mean, if you think about it just for five seconds, this verse presupposes your lot in life is to be persecuted. It will happen in one manner or another. It must happen if you are walking with the Lord because Jesus promised you would be treated by the world the way he was treated by the world. Uh, and for the most part, during the years of his ministry, uh, when he was sharing the Father and preaching the kingdom of God, he wasn't treated very well. Uh, and, and it eventuated in his being uh, killed on the cross, of course. So bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And that's why when you are persecuted, you can rejoice because someone has noticed you are a Christian. Uh, we always talk about the verse, you know, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and stuff. Uh, it, it, but it's also good to just say, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm excited because somebody noticed I'm a Christian. The disciples in the book of Acts were kind of like that. They'd get beat up for sharing their faith and they'd say, wow, praise the Lord. What happened? We got beat up. What? Yeah, we were sharing everything. They know we're Christians. We're getting through to people. And so for every bruise and buffeting they got, they were excited. Uh, it should, in fact, seem strange to you if you are not in some way, great or small, at some point being persecuted for your faith because the world, uh, once they begin to understand what a Christian is and what you're saying to them, uh, the cross becomes an offense because you're telling people that they are born dead in their trespasses and sins, and that there's only the one way to get to heaven, and that way is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, bless here can mean one of two things. It can mean that you give or return good words for their bad ones, or it can mean you are to pray for them. And obviously, I think it means both of those things. And so, if, if I'm being attacked verbally, then I should return good words uh, and then I should be at that moment and continuing to pray for those individuals uh, because that is God's heart of compassion towards them. One commentator illustrated it by saying, 
the child of Adam by nature is a rock, which when struck brings forth bitter water. But the child of God is a new rock, which when struck brings forth sweet water. Thus we will stand in our wilderness surroundings as fountains for him. Uh, it may be a reference to that Old Testament story of the rock that followed the children of Israel around in their wilderness wanderings. When they were thirsty, God commanded Moses to strike the rock, and from it, you remember, flowed a river of water enough to uh, satisfy the thirst of maybe a million people and all of their livestock. And then Paul tells us in his writings in the New Testament that the rock followed them around and that the rock was Christ. I always, that's one of my, I think that'd be a crazy thing to represent in a movie or in, in an illustrated way. You know, you, you go to sleep at night, there's the rock, then you move your camp a mile away, wake up the next morning. Is that that rock? Is that that same rock? I don't know what, how that all worked out, but this rock followed them and the rock was figured, prefigured Jesus Christ who would give them this water. And so uh, striking the rock ought to bring forth a fountain of compassion and forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so if we are representing Christ, when we are struck, as it were, uh, for his sake, it should reveal a fountain of living water. It it should return this blessing uh, rather than any cursing. And so would to God that when struck out of us would flow these things. And so verse 15 Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, this is certainly not restricted to non-believers, but I do think the section that we're in is more about life in the world than it is life in the church. We just started talking about being persecuted, and some of the other references we'll see in these last verses of Romans 12 really are more about worldlings and our relationship with them. And so uh, I'm going to concentrate on this weeping and rejoicing in terms of non-believers. And what I realize is that we can often be or become jealous of non-believers. I'll admit that I can, in my, when I'm in the flesh or if I yield to the flesh, I can be really jealous of non-believers, especially the ones driving Corvettes. Uh, you know, I've, I've told you, you know, I've resolved myself to the fact that I'll never have the 64 Malibu that I deserve, uh, you know, those kinds of things. But um, you become jealous of non-believers. They seem to prosper undeservedly because they're not serving the Lord while we struggle and suffer. And it can be hard to rejoice with them if we're jealous of them. We just really can't enter into a proper relationship with the non-believer. If they suffer, oh, we sometimes think they deserve it, don't we? We really do. Maybe it's only me. I'll just talk about me, I guess. But sometimes when wicked people or people who aren't believers and maybe persecute us or they don't treat us right, when they suffer we're almost excited about it because they deserve it. It's hard to weep for them. You know, uh, we need to, you know, with me, sometimes I have to pull a nose hair or something to get tears flowing, you know. It's like, oh, wait a minute. You know, how should I react to this? That's actually very tragic, you know. Now, I say that, you're laughing at me, but Michael Landon one time revealed that as an actor's trick. He said whenever, remember, how many of you remember Little House on the Prairie? Um, yeah, it's still contemporary. 
He was crying from the time the show started until the time it was over because people were dying and going blind and having diseases and fires were wiping out whole towns and plagues and, you know, hail and all this kind of stuff. And he said to get himself to start crying, he would pull a nose hair. I couldn't believe how he'd have any nose hairs left after any of the episodes, you know. My brothers made a song up when I was a kid about Little House on the Prairie. It was, we're all blind and we don't mind. Because we couldn't watch it at my house. Of course, I wasn't a Christian back then. And we, you could not watch Little House on the Prairie. It wasn't a shoot 'em up Western. It was some crazy emotional show where people were crying and blind all the time. So anyway. So it's hard to weep for people. It's hard to weep for people when we don't really care or when we think, yeah, they deserve it. You know, and so we need to overcome that kind of thinking. Our rejoicing and weeping with non-believers, of course, it always needs to be tempered by what we know to be true and what our role is in their lives. For example, if someone prospers, I can rejoice with them and that's great, but what good does it do to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? Likewise, if someone is suffering through my tears, I can offer them the hope of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I really do have good news for people. Uh, And so there is a proper way. First of all, we need to be encouraged to rejoice with worldlings and to weep with worldlings, but we need to also do it in the right way, representing Christ. And I think that's the track here that Paul is on. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Be of the same mind doesn't mean we must agree with non-believers. We must tolerate them, but not agree. Now, tolerance is not accepting everyone's belief and lifestyle. It is recognizing and to an extent, if possible, respecting people without accepting Uh, their beliefs. There's been a change in the practical definition of tolerance. What some are calling the new tolerance is to say that all beliefs, such as religious ones and lifestyles, must be accepted as equally true and valid. The new tolerance not only expects us to accept all behaviors, values, and beliefs, but it also expects us to approve of them and in some cases to celebrate them. The only people who are not tolerated by the new tolerance are those who won't accept anything and everything, and thus Christians especially are expected to tolerate everyone's beliefs and behaviors, but nobody needs to tolerate ours. Uh, It's kind of a weird situation where tolerance is, is required of everyone, every lifestyle, every religion, but Christianity, which takes a stand and says, yeah, that's just... You know, I understand you living that way, but it's because you're in sin. Well, that's an intolerant position, and we're not allowed to hold that. We can't practice this new tolerance as believers in the authority of God's Word. So how are we to be of the same mind toward one another? Well, I think we do it by seeing the sinner in need of salvation, by going to the root of their problem rather than focusing on its bad fruit. They need to be saved. They need the power that only the Holy Spirit indwelling them can provide. And so regardless, you know, I I know I don't want to be too general, but I also don't want to be real specific. But regardless a person's belief system or religious system or behavior or lifestyle, I need to set that aside and say this person is a sinner in need of salvation. And they express their sin in this particular way, which might, you know, 
really offend me or might not bother me. It might be a way that I used to sin. It might be a way I've never thought of sinning. Uh, But I need to move that aside because that is just the fruit, as it were. It's bad fruit, of course, but it's the fruit of the root of their sin. And what they need is to come to Jesus Christ. They don't need behavior modification. They don't need me to talk to them about their behavior. They need me to talk to them about the Savior. And then, as, you, as happened with you, if you got saved later in life, your behavior changed after you came to know Christ. So people didn't come to me and say, uh, you're, a, you're an alcoholic or you're a pothead and you need to stop doing that because that's detrimental you know, to all of these things and then we can talk about God. No, Christians would just come and say, you've offended a holy God, you're a sinner and you need to, and then I would try and bring up, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so no, we're not talking about those things. We're talking about your relationship with God. Oh, you want me to do that? No, I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to get saved. And so I think sometimes we forget this, in, you know, where we go after the behavior, we, and we're offended by the behavior, and what we need to really just focus in on the fact that you're looking at a sinner who has no power to do anything other than what they're doing, no matter how weird what they're doing is. I mean, we barely yield to the Spirit and do what we're supposed to do. Here's a person that's an empty vessel, dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, We can't really expect them to do much more. In fact, the world ought to be a much worse place than it is, and it will be once the church is removed. But, you know, non-believers, they're just, they're dead and trespasses and sins. They're taken captive by the devil to do his will, and the goal should be to break their heart with the love, acceptance, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ once they know that they've broken his heart, broken his law. And and so let's concentrate on that. People need to be saved. Do not set your mind on high things. Uh, One of the things that means is that you shouldn't distinguish between non-believers based upon their status or their wealth. High things here has to do with status and position and uh, those sorts of things. You shouldn't prefer the wealthy and the powerful. Without ignoring anyone, associate with the humble, with the lowly, the overlooked. Jesus associated with the humble, and so should we. In fact, he did it so much he got criticized for it. And so, again, would to God that we would be criticized for hanging around with people that other people think are kind of seedy and low life and all of that. Wise in your own opinion seems to mean in your own wisdom. As we grow in the Lord, it's typical to think that we've figured out a few things, that we know how to handle certain issues and situations. Notwithstanding that we do grow and we should mature, It's important to continue to depend upon God to always walk in the Spirit. It's too easy to become mechanical as we approach life, too easy to leave our first love. Uh, The tractor illustration is great. Too easy for the church to become like that tractor and think, hey, we can plow this field in the energy of our flesh. We can move this tractor. It'll take a long time. We'll have to appeal to people to do it. We won't have enough volunteers, you know, all of that kind of stuff, but we'll get the job done and then give the glory to God. Or we could just turn on the tractor and let it do most of the work for us. I'm, a, I'm not a tool guy because I hate to do ever, anything and everything. Cars, hate them. Houses, hate them. I don't, there's nothing I like to do except put batteries in watches. I'm now a battery watch kind of a guy. 
that's a whole other story I'll tell you one time. But uh, so I don't have really decent tools. And so to me, if a pair of pliers and a channel lock and a screwdriver won't do it, I'm in trouble. So I've ruined more things by trying to do it. And then somebody will come over, one of you guys will come over, and you'll pull out of your wallet a tool. And yeah, all you need is this, uh, you know, we used to call them dumaflotches at the, you know, whatever we couldn't. All you need is a dumaflotch, and that'll, you know, and, and, and it takes 10 seconds to do what would take me three and a half hours and three trips to Osh because I've ruined everything, you know. So the right tools, and so the church, the church is the right tool, as, as it were, but it has to have the power of God. We have to tie into that power. And, and so as we grow and mature, we have to fight this idea that we've figured some things out, that we've got it down, that we understand what we're doing, that this is the answer, you know, uh, all the time, and this is the way that we give the answer. Now, we have to just be really careful about that. Verse 17. Uh, repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. When people treat you badly, don't return what they deserve. Instead, have regard for good things. The words mean you should kid, uh, consider in advance how you will react and how it will affect others who are watching you. And so I, I should expect to be treated badly, and then I'm kind of ready, or I'm readier at least, to yield to the Spirit in my response. Uh, being ready, I mean, you want to be ready, don't you, for all things? I mean, you know, sometimes you get caught off guard in a certain area, and then you think, okay, that, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to be ready the next time. And so Paul is saying, you know, have regard for good things in the sight of men, or be ready to respond the right way in a good way, uh, you know, understanding that you're going to be tr mistreated, so how are you going to respond so that you're not caught off guard? so that you, you know what to say and what to do, or at least that you're in a situation where you want to say something right. Verse 18, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You and I are to do our part to live peaceably. Not always possible to be at peace with other people, but it is always possible for you to do your part. And I'm glad it's qualified by as much as depends on you. That means that it's not peace at any price. Still, I must work hard at maintaining peace with non-believers. If a person is offended, let it be by the gospel rather than by my poor representation of the gospel. Um, backing up a little bit to whether it's uh, uh, being persecuted or offending others, whether they're persecuting you or you're offending them, um, Make sure it's because of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel, not because you're overbearing or cruel or weird or any of those things. I, I uh, worked with a dear brother down at, in San Bernardino at the title company. There was, uh, I think there were three of us who were Christians. And um, Dave was a great brother, but he just wouldn't work hard, you know. Uh, and, and he, uh, God love him, he was always trying to witness to people um, but he was always getting uh, reprimanded by the, uh, the, our supervisors for not doing his work and, and not getting his job done. And then he would come to us because we had a little prayer meeting and he'd say, oh, I'm being, you know, he was being persecuted for righteousness sake. And we, Dan, the other Christian, and I would say, no, you're being persecuted because you're an idiot. You're, you're supposed to do your work. 
You know, and if you can find time to witness, that's fine. I mean, you know, because you do need to witness, but you also need to do your work. They're paying you to do a job, and you're, you're, you're really blowing it. And, and then he would, oh, well, you know, he... And then other people are just offensive the way they share the gospel. They just are overbearing and offensive. And I'm not saying that they're, you can't be forceful or persuade men. That's not it. But some people just offend others, and then they say, well, you know, it's they're offended with Jesus. Well, no, they're offended with you. The only people really Jesus offended were religious leaders, and that's something to think about. The average person, the normal everyday person from children to, to you know, lepers loved Jesus. They wanted to be around Jesus. They wanted to touch Jesus and listen to him. Sure, many of them abandoned him when things got tough and when he wasn't feeding them and all of that. But they, they, the people who were really offended by him were rig- religious leaders. And so, you know, we shouldn't really be offending people. And when we do, it needs to be for the sake of the gospel, that, that, we're, that they realize that we're telling them that they're sinners in need of salvation. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Avengers in the theaters right now, I'm sure they must save the world from a threat to our survival, and probably everybody claps at the end and life goes on. That's not the kind of vengeance Paul was talking about. In chapter 13, he's going to point out that governments have the power to wield the sword. We can defend ourselves. We can go to war. This verse is about our personal relationships. It's about the desire to get even or more with someone who has wronged us. It's about coworkers and classmates, not our response to a nuclear Iran. You understand? So I'm not to avenge myself in my personal relationships. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is perfectly able to deal with your oppressors, and he will in his own time. Lenski writes, God has long ago settled the whole matter about exacting justice from wrongdoers. Not one of them will escape. Perfect justice will be done in every case and will be done perfectly. If any of us interfered, it would be the height of presumption. David's dealings with King Saul are probably the best example of this. On more than one occasion, David could have killed or ordered the killing of Saul. He knew, however, that the fate of Israel's first king was not in his hands. That judgment belonged to God. And so David continued to flee, continued to live as a fugitive until God stepped in and dealt with Saul. Could have killed him on a number of occasions. In fact, one occasion, his servant was with him, and they had snuck into the enemy camp, and he said, hey, I'll do it. I'll, I'll stake him to the ground. David said, no, no, we, we can't do that. This is the Lord's anointed. I mean, this is, a, this is a no-brainer, you know, from a spiritual point of view. God has to deal with Saul. And, and yet so often we want to take matters into our own hands. And so God says, no, just let it go. I'll take care of that uh, in my time. Give place to wrath also means yield to wrath. In other words, stand by and let man's wrath work. Endure with patience the wrath of those who do you wrong because the Bible says God can make the wrath of man to praise him. Man's wrath gives God the opportunity to do great deeds. 
Probably the best example of that is the Pharaoh of Egypt refusing to free the Hebrew slaves, thus allowed God to work mighty miracles on behalf of his people and to one by one overcome the gods of the Egyptians. And so he made the wrath of that man to praise him. Now, if you're Moses, if you're the children of Israel, you don't really want to wait for the wrath of man to praise God. You, you want to get out of that situation as soon as possible. But God says, no, no, you're, you're the exact person I want in this situation. Worked really hard to get you right here so that you could endure this so that I can do something greater than just get you out of it. You know, God can always deliver you from a situation, right? I mean, he, it wasn't a bad situation, but when Philip... Uh, it's the most radical example. When Philip was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch and then he baptized him, and when they came up out of the water, Philip was gone. He'd been raptured over to Azotus, I think it is. But uh, So God can just pick you up and move you physically if he wants to. And all of us probably have experienced some kind of deliverance where you're just, oh, you're suffering or you're struggling or something, and then, man, just like that, the situation changes. Your boss isn't your boss anymore, or you get fired, or, you know, something happens where your situation radically changes. And, and so, but God says, you, you can endure the wrath of man for my sake. Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you heap coals of fire on his head. While this can be literally true, really those who persecute you are not those who are destitute of food and water. So this is an illustration. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse suggests a figurative meaning to this that makes some sense. He compares the feeding of your enemy to the feeding of a sick child. Sick child, one whose stomach aches, needs a special diet of food and drink to settle that stomach. Just so your enemy is all tied up in knots, as it were, in his or her stomach and is feeling upset. Their attack upon you is an evil outflow from a corrupt system. They, too, need a special diet, and in our case, it's love and forgiveness. That's the only thing that will change them. What's with heaping coals of fire on his head? I've always liked this. Quite honestly, it's one of my favorite verses because I have a picture of just somebody, ah, you know. I mean, that's what you think of. If you take, I think of a barbecue coal, right? I'm thinking, you know, have you ever, you know, they just take my barbecue coals and throw them on this guy? That's kind of, you know, not what's here. In ancient times, it was hard to start a fire. Here's two meanings to this. In ancient times, it was hard to start a fire. Uh, hot embers could be carried from place to place in containers. In some instances, an insulated container was carried on an individual's head. You've seen people walking around with things on their head, right? I haven't perfected that in our house yet, but have you tried that with plates and dishes and stuff? You know, it's, it's hard, harder than you think. According to this view... The emphasis would be on the good we are to do, especially when the other person is in need. Because in this case, it means, you know, an ember or a hot coal is a good thing. It's an important thing. It's a necessary thing. In other words, give them hot coals. They don't have a fire. If you've ever watched Survivor, you know what I'm talking about. Because, you know, if you, if you, let me give you a, 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 something here. If you ever try out for Survivor and they accept you, learn how to make fire. Because they always get to the island and we can't have any fire. We don't know how to make fire. We're starving. We don't have any water to drink. I'm going to die. Learn how to make fire. Or hide a burning coal somewhere. You know, that's going to be your luxury item. What's that on your head? Nothing. It seems to be smoking. No, it's not. 
tell them you're Jewish and have a phylactery and have a burning coal in there, you know, just say, pop that thing open and say, hey, we got fire. I've often thought of ways to cheat on survivors. You know, what are they going to do once you're there? Raid the base camp or something. But anyway, um, so that's actually a positive thing. So give your, give your enemy a burning coal. His fire went out. He's freezing cold. He's going to die. Give him coal. Or this statement could be using coals to represent pangs of conscience that trouble the evildoer when we do them good rather than, than harm. Some say this has an Egyptian orientation where, or a, a origination where that's an idiom in, in ancient Egypt uh, or was used by the ancient Egyptians of, you know, you, because of your behavior, you force conscience to come upon a person and, and their conscience pains them the way a coal would burn their, their, their uh, head. Either way, the context shows that our goal is to do good to the evildoer in the hope that they will repent. We want him to become our friend rather than our enemy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. George Washington Carver once said, I will never let another man ruin my life by making me hate him. As a believer, he would not allow evil to conquer him. Greatest example I can think of regarding overcoming evil with good would have to be the Lord on the cross. His words and actions were such that the Roman centurion declared, surely this was the Son of God. I'm sure those guys heard a lot of different things coming from the crosses as they uh, crucified individuals. But he was a mason man. This, this man. this man is the Son of God because of how he returned uh, good for evil. In his commentary on these verses, Dr. J. Vernon McKee wrote this. He said, The non-Christian is not concerned about the doctrine you hold, whether you're a premillennialist or whether you believe in election or free will. However, he does want to know if you are truthful or not. If you are a person that can uh, be depended upon, let me illustrate this. Some years ago in Memphis, Tennessee, a Christian handed a man a tract. What is this? Asked the man. The Christian replied, it's a tract, and I want you to read it. I don't read, the man replied, but I tell you what I will do. I will watch your tracks. And McGee says, oh, how accurate this is. The world is watching the tracks that you make. Now, he wasn't against giving out tracts, and neither are we. Uh, and, and I think sometimes we overemphasize lifestyle. You know, there's that famous quote, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. How many times have you heard that? All right. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Yeah, you know what? At some point it is necessary to use words because just like somebody can't really have a full revelation of God from creation, they can't get a full revelation of God from you just being a nice person. At some point, you do have to use words. So I think sometimes we excuse ourselves, well, I'm preaching the gospel through my actions. Well, that's great. But really, your actions should just support the preaching of the gospel. So he's not against giving out tracts. But the point of this section in Romans is all this doctrine that we've learned is not for head knowledge. It's so that when we go out into the world, we know how and why we can do these things. And Paul doesn't tell us how to do them. He just tells them, this is, this, this is who you are. This is your default position, and if you're not doing this, that's why we come to and say, oh, I need to make some adjustments. I need to realize that this is who I am. This is my spiritual heritage. I need to get back on track with the Lord, and that way when my sharing of him comes, uh, there will be a match between my walk and my talk. Amen? Amen.